Shall we just uh, pray as we stand? Uh, Lord God, we do uh, thank you that, that Scripture answers uh, difficult issues. It tackles them uh, head on. And Lord God, it teaches us what we need to know. Father, we pray tonight that you would uh, teach us what we need to, to know, that we might trust in you more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a seat? <clears throat> The existence of, of suffering in the world is probably one of the most painful uh, and difficult issues that we face. I remember well from uh, missions I was involved with at university uh, that suffering was always one of those topics that crops up at those apologetic meetings uh, that you have. Why does God allow uh, suffering? It's a question that confronts us all, isn't it? Bad things happen to us, to those we love, those we see on TV. And it's, it's hard to deal with. And as Christians, we're not immune to it. If anything, as Christians, we're more aware of the issue because of the problem it poses for us. Because the Bible reveals uh, God as a God who's almighty and good. And because he's all-powerful, surely he's able to prevent suffering. And if he's good, surely he must want to. So why doesn't he? If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, then the flood of Pakistan is not so much a problem as just a fact of life. It's just the way things are, either because God can't do anything about it, doesn't care, or simply doesn't exist. What's really interesting is that far from avoiding the issue, the Bible actually confronts uh, this issue head on, and nowhere is that more the case uh, than in Habakkuk. As we heard uh, last week, Habakkuk was a prophet about 600 years before Jesus, and his book records a question and answer session uh, between himself and God. And last week we saw Habakkuk's uh, first question. Habakkuk lived at a time uh, when God's people had largely turned their backs on God, so he asked God, why do you tolerate wrongdoing, violence and injustice among your people and not judge them? How long would God allow this to go on? Surely God is risking his own reputation uh, by tolerating this ongoing uh, wrong. And God's answer is really surprising. God is not inactive. It's just that Habakkuk has been looking in the wrong place. God is going to do something about it. He is going to raise up the Babylonians to judge Judah by putting an end to their life as a nation, to disperse Judah into exile. But for Habakkuk, this was an absolutely shocking answer. How can a holy and righteous God, whose eyes are too pure, we're told, to look on evil, use a wicked nation like Babylon to judge his own people? How can God stand by and let the Babylonians trample over everyone whilst they give all the glory to their own gods in the process? It's outrageous. Surely God is risking his name again here. That's his second question. If you think about it, We face the same problems today, don't we? Why do anti-Christian opinion formers get such a free run uh, in the media? Why is it that some uh, university Christian unions are getting banned uh, from being on campus? Why as a nation do we often pass so many laws that are contrary to God's teaching and bad for people? Why is it that some church leaders deny the authority of the Bible and then have a go at those that want to stand up for it? Do we even have a sense that just as God raised up the pagan Babylonians to judge Judah, so the kind of influence 
of our godless culture is being used to judge the church? Isn't God's reputation being threatened in the same way today? And so at the beginning of chapter 2, we're there with Habakkuk, aren't we? Standing watch on the ramparts, waiting to see what God will say, what his answer will be to this complaint. So what can we, what can we learn from this chapter? Well, I think that God's response to Habakkuk points us towards two attitudes that we should adopt. The first is the right attitude to God's word, and the second is the right attitude uh, to the world around us. So firstly, a, a right attitude to God's word. That's verses 2 to 5. Habakkuk's wait for an answer is rewarded, isn't it? Have a look at verses 2 to 3. Then the Lord replies, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come, and will not delay. This is part one of God's reply to Habakkuk's question. God's, God's full answer it is going to come as a revelation, as a vision in a moment. But this revelation is communicated using words. And Habakkuk is told to write it down so that it can be read, proclaimed and passed on. God's communication is clear, permanent and true. This is a great case study of how God reveals his words. The word we have in front of us now is the Bible. God shows things to Habakkuk that he couldn't otherwise see. Habakkuk's got his eyes open to see the truth about God and his plans. God speaks and what he says is written down so that everyone can get the message. And we get to know God and his plans by listening to what he says, by reading his words. And the nature of this revelation is very clear, isn't it, from verse 3. This revelation is partly a vision of what will happen to the Babylonians on the Day of Judgment. But the revelation is also much bigger than that, as verse 3 makes clear. This is a revelation that concerns the goal and the end of history, It concerns the fulfilment of God's plan to rescue for all eternity those who trust in him. And it points, doesn't it, to that final day of judgment when justice will be meted out. A day that is fixed by God. And what does God do? He sets it out in advance. All in advance, right here. But until that day, there will always be the pain of injustice. And in the meantime, Habakkuk is encouraged both to wait patiently for the vision that's to come and also the end that it speaks about. How long do you bother waiting for someone? I guess the answer depends on who they are and what we're waiting for. I've got a friend who waited 14 months for his wife to agree to marry him. That's a long wait. So he's obviously worth waiting for. And God is certainly worth waiting for. He is never late. Just think how long the Old Testament believers had to wait for Jesus. But he came at just the right time. The second coming of Jesus and that final day of justice is also long awaited, but he won't be late. That rescue may seem to linger, God says to Habakkuk. It may seem delayed, slow in coming. It may look at times as if the rescue is not coming at all. But the rescue is certain. And God's timing is perfect. We just need to hang in there. And if you think about it, we have a huge advantage over Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk had to wait for the vision from God and its fulfillment. But in Jesus, God says everything to us that he has to say to us. Unlike Habakkuk, we're not left waiting for a vision. God has told us all that we need to know. He's revealed his purposes to us to bring everything under the rule of Jesus Christ. But like Habakkuk, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of that promise, the promise of God's words. And in that waiting, there is a danger for us. The danger is this, that because that, that final day of justice seems so long in coming, we will give up. We'll stop waiting, stop trusting, and turn to unbelief. And that will always be a temptation, whilst we have to suffer while we wait. So like Habakkuk, we need to have a right attitude to God's word. And there are two options for us for the attitude we can adopt. And they're both there in verse 4. Just have a look. See he, that's the Babylonian nation, is puffed up, his desires are not upright. And then God compares the Babylonians with another type of person. But the righteous will live by his faith. Now back to the Babylonians. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. There are two ways for us to live, either by faith, like the righteous, or puffed up and arrogant. Here Habakkuk has the king of Babylon in mind, but throughout the Bible, Babylon is a byword for human rebellion. Just think from the Tower of Babel in Genesis through to the the prostitute in Revelation. We see rebellion against God throughout. We either have puffed up self-confidence in ourselves or humble dependence on God's words. It's one or it's the other. And this self-sufficient attitude is not just confined to those who openly go and stick two fingers up at God. When things happen that we don't like, or don't understand, then we tend to put God in the dock and pass judgment on him. And in doing so, we treat our own moral conscience as the moral absolute. We measure God up against that. We determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. And God must fit into that. In short, we take the crown off God's head and we put it on our own head. But we only have to look back to the cross to see that God is not remote or indifferent to our suffering. He does care. He cares so much that he himself came and suffered in our place, in the person of Jesus. You know, we're rightly concerned about injustice. But the cross was the greatest injustice ever done. Jesus came and willingly suffered so that we who deserve the punishment might be spared. How unjust is that? So if we ever have a kind of puffed up sense of pride, we need to look back, back with humility and gratitude to the cross, and we need to trust God to act in his own time, his own perfect time. Living by faith doesn't require us to kind of run away from some of the harsh realities of life to pretend that suffering doesn't exist. Faith doesn't involve believing something against the evidence. Faith is about trusting God's character as revealed in his words. And Habakkuk could look back at the evidence of God's past dealings with his people 
And we can look back to God's dealings with us at the cross and the unbroken promises of God in Scripture. And we can choose to trust. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy. Much of what we see around us seems to question God's character. Just as it did in Habakkuk's day, as a Babylonian army that seemed unstoppable then, so there seems to be kind of insurmountable threats to to us, to the church, to God's name from every angle. We're in a battle. But we need to realise that faith based on what we see going on around us is not going to last the distance. Only faith motivated uh, by God's word, which reveals his unchanging character, will last. Faith that puts what God says before what we see is happening in the world. And it means we'll wait. And that sort of faith is going to transform our attitude to the circumstances we find ourselves in. We see that in verses 6 to 20. It's my second point. Faith gives us a right attitude to the world. It gives us a right attitude to the world. Verses 6 to 20 show us the alternative to faith. These, these verses are a picture of a puffed up kind of self-reliance in opposition to God. And we see it is a path destined for destruction. And we also see in these verses that those who trust God's word don't need to fear the wicked, despite their apparent power. Rather, it's the wicked who should be pitied, as those who one day will be ridiculed and judged. The phrase that keeps appearing in there is, woe to him. It's a kind of mocking uh, laugh at the folly of those who are in rebellion to God. And it's expressed here in the form of a song, a song that taunts uh, in what it says. It's the sort of song you might get on the terraces of a football stadium, the kind of you're not winning anymore sort of chant that you get. But at a football match, the chant is, is sung by the winning side. But here it's being sung by the team who's bottom of the league, or who seems to be. A team that, despite seeming bottom, is trusting in God's character and words. The song has five verses, and each one concerns an aspect of the way of life of those who trust themselves instead of God's word, those who live for the present instead of the future, those who are selfish and unconcerned for others. And we see that they are taunts that apply not just to Babylon, but also to the wider empire, if you like, of evil and pride, uh, which we are all born into as sinful human beings. Let's just take a look at them. The first taunt is in verses 6 to 8. Woe to those who live for personal greed. Those who get on in life by exploiting others. Those who gain wealth for themselves in which they put their trust. Woe to them, because one day the boot will be on the other foot. The Lord has seen those who've got on by trampling on others. The nations that have lived by plundering others. Who've held power through bloodshed. The nations who have chosen to prosper and be rich, whilst Pakistan starves, they will be plundered. They will reap what they sow. Second, verses 9 to 11. Woe to those who live for personal security, who try to escape ruin by building on the ruin of others. You know, human pride always likes to think it's guarded itself against Every kind of disaster, as the writer says, has set its clutches, set its nest on high 
to escape the clutches of ruin. We take out insurance uh, to cover every kind of possible disaster, we think. We like to think that we've bought our security, but the Lord has seen our self-dependence and our pride. Maybe we pride ourselves at being able to take care of our rivals, be good at, at doing down that opposition at work for our own gain. We may think that nobody has seen what we've secretly done. There's no evidence against us. Not so. The stone and wood of our buildings will give testimony against us. As one writer put it, creation will betray us to the creator when he asks it to. Third, verses 12 to 14. Woe to those who live for personal power. Our towns, cities, a way of life as a nation, it may seem really prosperous and secure, but what corruption, exploitation and, and double dealing has gone on to make them what they are? How many people have been hurt along the way? Babylon achieved great power at the expense of other nations, weaker nations, but all that work came to nothing in the end. Verse 13 makes it crystal clear that everything that sinful man builds in his alienation from God is nothing but fuel, fuel for the coming fire of judgment. It will only count against us. All the pretensions of human achievement are ultimately for nothing, no matter how glorious they seem to appear right now. Fourth, Verses 15 to 17. Woe to those who live for personal exploitation, who see other people as objects simply to be exploited. Those who profit from pornography or prostitution. Those who use alcohol to seduce others. Who lend money at extortionate interest rates. Who treat sex as a superficial lifestyle experience. Your turn is coming. The Lord will shame such people. They will be given a cup to drink that will expose everything about them. The terrifying cup of God's wrath. God's anger will catch up with them sooner or later. Fifth and final taunt is in verses 18 to 20. Woe to those who live for false gods. This is a taunt about idolatry. Idolatry is the opposite to faith in God. Idolatry puts a lifeless object in the place of the God who made me. What a stupid thing to do. What is the value of worshipping something I have made, something of my own creation? Who would be so stupid as to seek guidance on how to live from a lifeless object, even if it's made of gold and silver? It's lifeless. It teaches us nothing. Yet that's precisely the basis of our modern materialist consumer society. The wisdom of our culture constantly tells us, doesn't it, to get, get our security from what we have made, from what we own, our house, our job, our bank balance, our car, whatever it is. This is all idolatry. And it fuels the lie that somehow we can usurp God's place that we will come out in the end okay by relying on our personal endeavour. The message of this song is is tough, but it's clear. 
the destruction of this way of life will come. It will come as surely as when the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 BC, as surely as the collapse of every human empire across the world, from the Egyptian empire to the British and communist empire that has ever existed. They've all collapsed, as sure as that. And it will come upon cultures and individuals who currently seem to be immune from God's authority. The unscrupulous, the despotic, those who simply seem to be having a great time and loving life, even though they have no time for God. I wonder, what about us? Do we have our own little empires where we're tempted to put our trust? A relationship? High-flying career? New A star grade at A level? Making money, a bigger house, perfect children? A position where we're recognised in church life? Woe to us if we put our trust in those things. We're kidding ourselves if we think those things can save us. They will come to nothing. They will all go up in smoke. Trusting in all these things is diametrically opposed to faith in the living God. So when we're tempted to to give up trusting in God and to turn to these things, we need to remember what the outcome will be. Maybe, just maybe in the short term, these things will make life seem that little bit easier, a little bit more palatable, a little bit more fashionable to get by with. But in the long term, they will lead to total loss. An empire that is not rooted in the kingdom of God will will only be the fuel to the fire of our destruction. Just as we finish, do you just see two realities in this verse that should give us huge confidence in our lives. Firstly, just have a look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. These are famous words and they describe a future reality. Those who live to build empires for themselves need to realise that in the end it is only God's kingdom that will endure. The prophet Isaiah used exactly the same phrase to describe the messianic kingdom that broke through with Jesus, the kingdom which will be completed on his return. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. It's great you're here, but do you see the truth at the heart of this passage? The only way to avoid destruction on that final day is to be part of Jesus' kingdom, to put your trust in in Jesus Christ. Can I ask you, will you do that? Second reality is there in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is a present reality being described here. God's kingdom will come visibly over all nations one day. But you know something? God is also resigning, not resigning, That would be outrageous. God is also reigning in heaven over all the earth right now. And the God who reigns is a God who speaks. So all the earth should should be silent and listen. Do we do that enough? 
Do we share Habakkuk's trust in God's word? Do we have the same woe for a world that opposes God and is heading for judgment? It's quite easy to be, be courageous in here. A bit tougher out there. Will we let the apparent, only the apparent, strength of the world silence us? Or will the reality of the risen Jesus, who is reigning now and will one day return, will that give us the courage to buck the trend of the world, to dare to be different?